This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On the programme this week, we look at how a far-right Austrian hit the headlines here and gave some journalists and editors an editorial dilemma. Also, the latest World Cup jersey was unveiled this week in a PR blitz that turned on a few in the media. They're so skin tight. So tight. Tight. Beautiful body-hugging fabric. You got that jersey on underneath? You, You can't grab them anymore like you used to, you know. But first, the pressure's on for the government to deliver consistent cancer care around the country and better care. And that will mean more than just spending more money on medicines. But that became the focus of much of the media coverage of the issue lately. I'm Richard Badwell. I've been a surgeon for almost 20 years. It's the only thing I've ever really wanted to do. Mostly, I operate on cancer patients. Surgery's not pretty, but at least it offers a chance of cure. This is the sharp end of cancer. That was how TVNZ's new show How Not to Get Cancer kicked off last Tuesday night. And even before it screened, the program's title and concept annoyed some people who already have cancer or their advocates. Troy Elliott, for example, whose wife Tracy has stage 4 breast cancer, said it was offensive to cancer sufferers. And Troy Elliott told RNZ's First Up program many people had actually boycotted the program. We even had some cases of... Of a, of a woman that had to deal with her child actually asking questions, Mummy, how come you decided not to get cancer and how come you didn't not get cancer? And even though episode one of the show did make it clear that anyone can get cancer and no one can be blamed for that, TVNZ apologised for unintentional upset caused. Surgeon Richard Barbour told viewers, cancer's complicated and upsetting, but avoiding it can be a good news story. No one's to blame for getting cancer, but we can all reduce our risk. I've decided to explore the other side of the cancer story, prevention. Tuesday's opening episode focused on food. Upcoming ones will examine lifestyle and our environment. And one of the four episodes will be all about medicine and treatment. But that's been the firm focus of much of the coverage of cancer in the news lately, along with those who have to live with it. In his daily show and his weekly newspaper column, Duncan Garner has hammered the government for failing to spend more on medicine for cancer care. And last Tuesday, he reminded the Prime Minister of her party's pre-election policy. Labour will create a national cancer agency to make sure New Zealanders get consistent cancer care and end the anomalies in treatments. We will end this postcode lottery by making sure there are standard treatments across all our DHBs. We are committed to ensuring New Zealanders get the world-class health care they deserve. It goes on, we'll provide $10 million to establish the agency, another $10 million to get the work underway. Joining us now is Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Good morning. Good morning. Duncan, the whole point of us talking about the Cancer Agency was this issue of inconsistency of Mm. treatment. And that campaign for the National Cancer Agency is now being fought in and with the media. In just over an hour, a petition will be handed over to National Party Health spokesperson Michael Woodhouse calling for a better way to help cancer sufferers in this country. The petition has been launched by Blair Vining, who's suffering terminal bowel cancer. He's calling for a national cancer agency and he's had a lot of help from his daughter. That was News Hub at 6 last weekend. Blair Vining's family have been paying a fortune for medication not funded by the national drug-buying agency Pharmac or his own private health insurance. And online, his daughter Lily spread the word of his campaign. The brave 12-year-old made a heartfelt plea to Jacinda Ardern to set up a national cancer agency to help people like her dad. I think it shouldn't matter where you live in New Zealand or if you are rich or poor, anyone with cancer should be able to receive the best possible care. 
The Herald's health reporter Emma Russell also reported on Blair's final farewell event last week in a story that kicked off with former All Blacks who were there to support him. Several articles she's written about Blair Vining's campaign have the tag Cancer Disgrace and in a five-part series she wrote for the Herald back in May called Cancer, Why Can't We Get It Right? She said this. Southern DHB oncologist Chris Jackson has been advocating for a national cancer agency funded by the government but acting independently, like Pharmac does, to improve the system. But in a lot of the media coverage lately, the government's drug-buying agency Pharmac has been framed as the problem, not the solution. Last month, RNZ ran a four-part investigation into how Pharmac works and whether its model is costing lives. And Guy Nesman grilled the Pharmac chief executive, Sarah Fitt, on Pharmac ranking medicines it might fund, but, frustratingly for patients, keeping that secret to try and cut better deals with the drug makers. That's what our prioritisation, our ranking does. It stacks up what actually is going to... But we don't know what the ranking is either, no. do we? Why not? Because it's the most commercially sensitive bit of information we have. Why? Because that acts as our leverage um, companies. But it was the limited availability of the latest life-extending but costly cancer drugs that was also a focus of the series. And at the end of it, the Pharmac boss, Sarah Fitt, told Guy and Espen of this. Treatment for cancer isn't all about medicines. No. It's about screening, it's about diagnosis. Can- can- medicines are about 8 to 10% of cancer control. The most effective things to manage cancer a screening, diagnosis, radiotherapy and surgery. Medicines make up 8 to 10% of cancer yeah, control. Yeah, but they can buy you years, though, can't they? Well, some can, some can't, and that's what we have to work out. Yeah, and you're comfortable to wait 13 years behind Australia to fund a drug like that? Well, that's we funded other medicines in the meantime. Mm. Personal stories of sufferers who are denied drugs that are funded by the state in comparable countries were also to the fore in that RNZ series. And again, two weeks later, in another RNZ series, Life or Death Under Pharmac, this time on the early morning show First Up. Our recent story on 14-year-old Stella Beeswick, who has SMA, that's spinal muscular atrophy, invoked such a huge response from our listeners and followers on social media who shared similar experiences. So we decided to invite them into the office to hear their stories. Today we begin a week-long series sharing some of their stories with you. Like Stella, many of them are desperately pleading for Pharmac to fund life-saving medication for them or their loved ones. Among a dozen on-camera monologues was this one with Troy Elliott, who described the care here as third world. The government increased in a so-called wellbeing budget $10 million each year for the next four years, 1% of the Pharmac budget. With inflation sitting there at 2%, we're actually going backwards. And the worst thing is that the, that actual $10 million was for what they termed affordable medicines or affordable drugs. Trust me, the drugs that we're on and thousands of others in New Zealand are on are not affordable at $120,000 a year. And that first up series ended with Ray Collins, who has advanced lung cancer and who aired her grievances against Pharmac in a poem. Oh, Pharmac. Oh, Pharmac. Why are you so commercially driven when so many meds are universally proven to give people like me a quality of life so people like me can be a normal wife? And younger diagnosed people can be long-time mums and be remembered as healthy, not ill by the young ones. Why do people like me risk being destitute when we are ill just because you won't fund a pill? 
Now, the distress of these people and their feelings about Pharmac and funding are pretty clear, but while some were specific about the costs of their treatments, only a few were forthcoming about how much time and quality of life the treatments might offer them. And that's obviously a tough thing to ask patients who are in distress, but the publicly funded budget for drugs is finite, and as things stand, funding medicine for them means others missing out too. Last Tuesday, Guy Nespinat returned to the story on RNZ's Checkpoint. While more than 100 medicines sit on Pharmac's waiting list, some for five years or even 10 years, NICE has no waiting list at all. The chief executive of NICE, Sir Andrew Dillon, is visiting New Zealand and he sat down for his only interview here with Guyon Espiner. NICE is the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, the agency which decides which cancer drugs are available for the National Health Service in the UK. And Lisa Owen pointed out that its chief executive, Sir Andrew Dillon, was visiting New Zealand as a guest of Medicines New Zealand, which represents drug companies and lobbies the government here to spend more on their products. Medicines New Zealand also sponsors content on major news websites, often through the stories of individual sufferers. Spinal muscular atrophy sufferer Fiona Tolich, for example, is one of them, and she was also one of those who told her story to RNZ's Life or Death Under Pharmac series. Why are they instead celebrating financial success or economical benefits or the savings that they make and and keeping everything secret? Nothing is centred around the patient at all. In a 12-minute interview on Checkpoint, Sir Andrew Dillon from NICE told Guy and Espiner that the UK draws on a special fund for speedy approval and purchase of expensive cancer drugs before clinical data confirms their effectiveness. But he wasn't willing to say that the Pharmac system, which doesn't do that, is wrong. Hence the awkward pause in this exchange. For lung cancer, Keytruda, Alectinib, Osmertinib, Crizotinib, all funded in the UK... Uh, they are, yes, yeah. Not funded here. We can't both be right, can we? You're either wasting money on drugs that, that don't provide enough benefit or we're rationing drugs that work. We can't both be right, can we? Yeah, but every country in the world is a bit different in terms of um, both the choices it makes and the ways it goes about making those choices. Online, RNZ's headline about NICE was, We Like to Say Yes. Pharmac, by contrast, has been portrayed across the news media recently as an outfit unwilling to say yes to the same treatments. But NICE can afford to say yes, thanks to the UK's Cancer Drugs Fund established in 2011. Now that fund was promised by the Conservative Party during an election campaign in 2010 and as Sir Andrew Dillon explained to Guy Espiner on Checkpoint last Tuesday, it was tweaked two years ago to fast-track promising new cancer drugs for UK patients. But a look at the UK media reveals concerns that cancer drugs have been prioritised over other treatments there because of this. In December 2014, for example, the Financial Times called the Cancer Drugs Fund a populist gesture that gives the impression of benefiting patients, but in fact rewards poor quality drugs while benefiting a handful of pharmaceutical companies at the expense of the taxpayer and the full range of National Health Service patients. In 2014, the UK's Labour Party said it would replace the Cancer Drugs Fund with a Cancer Treatment Fund, which would pay not only for innovative cancer drugs, but also for surgery and radiotherapy. 
Last year, the UK's Royal Society of Medicine analysed five years of national news reports in the UK about their cancer drugs fund. And the findings, published in the Royal Society of Medicine journal, were that mostly positive media stories are likely to have contributed to the cancer drug fund's continuation, despite what it called mounting evidence of its ineffectiveness. Access at any cost was the clear totem around which the pro-fund media based its coverage. The views of experts who pointed out the intrinsic unfairness of the fund or the lack of efficacy of many of the drugs seemed to have counted for little against the human interest stories of individual patients. The author of the report said that a number of senior correspondents, commentators and media outlets did attempt to restore some balance, but... Compared with the positive reporting and wide distribution of the other UK national newspapers, they were lone voices in the wilderness. Now that study was commissioned by Professor Richard Sullivan, Professor of Cancer and Global Health at King's College London, who advises other countries in cancer care regimes. Indeed, he was here in New Zealand at a major cancer care conference in February, which was opened by Blair Vining, the cancer sufferer now campaigning for a national cancer authority. The health minister, David Clark, was there too, launching a blueprint for the future agency as part of a new draft cancer care plan. And while he was here, Professor Sullivan talked to Kim Hill on RNZ National all about that. The, the issue has been over the years that within the pharmaceutical model, cancer drugs create incredible returns on investment. And we've seen basically prices going up and up and up over the last 20 years because it's the way that the market works. This is about power. It's the power to set very high prices and to keep them high because countries will pay for those prices. This is what the issue has been all the time. You have to put in, in, case, in place really strong mechanisms in your country to control prices and negotiate good prices. So this is about fair pricing, a fair price for the impact of those drugs to work. What we see, of course, is there's no connection between the prices, the impact that we have on patients' lives, or the amount of money that's invested in R&D. Countries and people are being asked to pay a great deal of money for the unknown. Mm. And, and a lot of that unknown is doesn't pan out. When we, we look backwards over sort of two or three years, we discover the drugs actually don't work. That was Richard Sullivan, Professor of Cancer and Global Health at King's College London, talking to Kim Hill on RNZ National back in February. Now, for all the claims that New Zealand's access to advanced cancer drugs is third world, our cancer survival rates are not. A major international study published in British medical journal The Lancet last year said New Zealand was actually in the top five countries in the world. For most common cancers, it said, the five-year survival rates are the highest in the world in the USA and Canada, Australia and New Zealand, and then Finland, Iceland, Norway and Sweden. But not, interestingly, in the UK. Now, the reasons that Pharmac withholds information on its decision-making is a legitimate topic for media investigation. And likewise, whether Pharmac is incentivised to come in under budget to create surpluses that it can use down the track rather than meeting the needs of people who are suffering now. And media shouldn't ignore the fact that hundreds of people are fundraising online to cover the costs of treatment that they might get for free in comparable countries, which spend much more of their health budgets on new medicines that extend life. Here, the media have amplified calls for reform of the Pharmac system and for a boost to the budget for medicine that's on its list and for new treatments on the pipeline. And as we've heard, the government acknowledges that a consistent standard of care around the country is really urgent. But the National Cancer Agency that's being proposed, which is independent and free from political influence, could still come to the conclusion that more money for new drugs isn't always the way to go. 
Philip Arps and um, the uh, alleged Christchurch government, uh, they're, in, they're in a category of, of their very own. Uh, Selner is not a criminal. Selner was deeply conservative, with deeply conservative views, which many people will find acceptable. That was Duncan Garner on 3's AM show last Tuesday, and the man he was describing there as deeply conservative was Martin Silner, a far-right Austrian activist who as a teenager was convicted of plastering a swastika on a synagogue and as an adult leads a movement that disrupted a play performed by refugees in Vienna by spraying blood over audience members and chartered a ship in an attempt to stop NGOs from rescuing asylum seekers from drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. What you're seeing behind me was the worst nightmare of all the lefts in the world, of Soros NGOs and the whole migration lobby. As the leader of Austria's so-called identitarian movement, Silna has tried to distance himself from his openly neo-Nazi teenage years. But as that clip from a YouTube video filmed on the deck of the ship indicates with its reference to Jewish Holocaust survivor George Soros, not a lot has changed. So where did Duncan Garner get the idea that this radical right-winger, who received a donation from the alleged Christchurch gunman, was a deeply conservative activist whose views would be considered acceptable by many New Zealanders? Well, probably from his appearance on News Hub's 6pm bulletin the night before. Martin Selner is open about his feelings on Muslim immigration. He hates it, and he adds a message for Kiwis who feel the same. I tell them that it's very important for them to stand up for the belief and not to be afraid to stop po- uh, posting on the internet and get on the streets, show the face and in a peaceful way, show that they're against mass migration and against Islamization. That was from part two of an investigation in the latest instalment of Patrick Gower's Because It Matters series, investigating the far right in New Zealand and overseas. And Patrick Gower told Duncan Garner the following morning he had come in for some flack for giving Martin Selner a platform to claim he was a peaceful anti-immigration campaigner. Did you meet Selner or you were just... Uh, No, look, I spoke to him yesterday and I do want to address that. There are people out there that are concerned that we're giving this guy a platform. No, 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 it's free speech. Uh, Well, look, at the end of the day, he's got a platform. It's called YouTube. It's called Facebook. It's called Twitter. He's got a massive platform. What I've been doing is highlighting the influence that he has had on New Zealand politics going all the he way to the National well. Party. He comes across acceptable. Yeah, I mean, he's a hipster. He comes across acceptable, and we've seen this all over the show. This is the way these guys What's roll. What's like on the small talk? You've got, you've got an acceptable face, and yep. underneath it, it inspires what, quite, what at times is, quite frankly, evil. Strong words there from News Hub's national correspondent, Patrick Gower. But with Duncan Garner repeatedly commenting on how reasonably Martin Selmer came across, Patrick Gower's two-part investigation clearly failed to convey, to some at least, just how toxic the far-right activist views are. Writing in the Washington Post last May, Anne Applebaum said... Martin Selner represents a curious phenomenon in European politics, the far-right middleman. Unlike the neo-Nazis of old, the identitarians don't wear jackboots, don't shave their heads, don't lurk in the shadows. They have slick websites, professional videos and formal organisations. And that slickness and professional approach requires journalists to provide context and background if their reports are to be anything more than a megaphone for carefully crafted far-right talking points. Patrick Gower's reports barely delved into or challenged Selner's views, providing just the briefest of background explanation. 
Selma is the leader of Austria's identitarian movement, Generation Identity. They believe in the great replacement, European culture disappearing under a wave of Muslim immigration. Gower seemed to assume that his viewers would be aware of just how racist and ridiculous the great replacement theory is, that they would know, for example, that Austria's Muslim community, many of whom are native-born, make up less than 8% of the population. In Vienna, it's around 10%, the same percentage as the Jewish population before the Nazi genocide, which saw the population slashed to just 800 Patrick Gower is keenly aware of the need to take right-wing extremism seriously. Back in May, he went on Threes the Project and made a public apology for not having done so in the past. To many of us, white supremacists were a punchline like some racist uncle you see every now and then. But I should have known, I should have known there are heaps of uncles and nephews and sons. And while we laughed, they just got stronger and they got armed. And Patrick Gower went on to point out his own lack of preparation when he did tackle the topic. I should have known all of this last year before sitting down with Stephen Molyneux and Lauren Southern. I underestimated them on the day, I was underprepared on the day, and they steamrolled me on the day. I should have known the stuff that I've learned over the past few weeks, the voices in white supremacist chat rooms and on far-right podcasts that spit out this vile stuff with Kiwi accents. I understand it now. I should have known terms like identitarians or replacement theory or accelerationism, but I didn't know. It seems a safe bet that most of his viewers are still in the dark when it comes to what those terms mean. And once again, a far-right provocateur will be feeling pleased with the added exposure they've received. On Tuesday, RNZ's Morning Report also ran an interview with Martin Selner, and again the far-right leader grabbed the opportunity to paint himself as a peace-loving activist. As you do it with Islam, you always say, after an Islamic attack, we now need to give um, a, a voice and a platform to peaceful Muslims you should now give a voice and a platform to peaceful patriots who are um, fighting the Great Replacement in a peaceful and political way. And comments like this one went largely unchallenged. What we don't want is to become a minority in our own lands. We don't want an Islamization of Europe. And we want to achieve this with peaceful methods, uh, creating awareness for those issues and problems. The idea that Austrians will become a minority in their own land is absurd. But with no figures or facts, listeners could be forgiven for thinking Austria is being overrun by hordes of foreigners. For the record, about 16% of Austrians were born outside its borders, compared to more than 25% of New Zealanders. The Morning Report interview isn't available on RNZ's website, and MediaWatch has been told that's because of legal concerns about how the alleged gunman was referred to during the interview. On Tuesday, News Hub journalist Sophie Bateman wrote a web article under the title Martin Silner, A History of Nonviolent Violence, in which she outlined some of Silner's more objectionable behaviour and explained why he'd been permanently banned from entering the United Kingdom. But only a fraction of those who heard Martin Silner on News Hub at 6 and RNZ's Morning Report will have read her excellent piece of work, and that's a pity because it provides vital background that should have been included in those interviews. So why was Martin Silner being interviewed by News Hub and RNZ now when news of his receiving a donation from the alleged gunman was reported internationally way back in March? Well, RNZ's news peg was that he'd returned the donation to victim support in New Zealand and a charity in Syria, and News Hub introduced its two-part investigation like this. 
Kia ora, good evening. Tonight we can reveal police are investigating death threats made by a notorious white supremacist against Winston Peters. And the Deputy Prime Minister is blaming it on a fake news campaign by neo-Nazis in Europe. And News Hub went on to screen some disturbing video from a rally protesting the UN Migration Pact held in Christchurch prior to the mosque massacre. This is what can happen when people believe lies and disinformation, threats to kill. Winston Peters has a lot to answer for to the people of this country. Hang him. Hang him. Ugly stuff. When Winston Peters was shown the video by Patrick Gower, he responded like this. The bunch of neo-Nazis in Austria were behind this, and they are. You're talking about Martin Salner, aren't you? <clears throat> William. If the glove fits, wear it. And Patrick Gower went on to report that the Deputy Prime Minister believes it's not just far-right groups in New Zealand who should be held accountable. Winston Peters is blaming this man, Martin Salner, who is the leader of the hipster far-right in Europe for whipping up hysteria with a fake news campaign. And now Winston Peters says the SIS should investigate Salna's influence here. And he has also gone after Simon Bridges, saying he has been a part of it too. Patrick Gower then linked the National Party's opposition to the UN Migration Pact and the Austrian far right like this. We believe that it will cede our sovereignty to the UN on migration. An endorsement from Simon Bridges and Salna has a message for him. I tell him he's on the right track here. I think the silent majority is on his side. Martin Selner having quite the impact. There are legitimate questions to be asked about National's stance on the UN Migration Pact, but to suggest that Martin Selner has played puppet master and is responsible for that stance is a stretch. But the next day, Patrick Gower went even further. Why has the National Party adopted the same policy as what was written on the alleged Christchurch gunman. But you can't say the National Party supports terrorism or people terrorism like what happened in Christchurch. Because uh, no, of course not. No, no, and, and no one, no one would say that. But what we do know, written on the gun that went into the mosque, was opposition to the United Nations Pact. Asking the National Party to justify its stance on the pact is fair enough. Framing it like that isn't. On Wednesday, the stuffed newspapers ran an editorial under the title Drop the Hate, Not the Debate, in which they explored the minefield National finds itself in as a result of joining Australia, the USA and the alleged gunmen and alt-right conspiracists in opposing the UN Migration Pact. It concluded... Our politicians can show a great deal of leadership in helping us plot our own path through the minefield by continuing to honour the democracy of debate and applying just enough weight to inform rather than inflate. Good advice, not just for politicians, but journalists and news editors too. Jeremy Rose reporting there on the decision by News Hub and RNZ to run interviews with the far-right Austrian activist Martin Selner months after it first emerged that he'd received a donation from the alleged Christchurch gunman. Jerseys are like that now, aren't they? They're so skin tight, you, you can't grab them anymore like you used to. You know, you look back to 95, and those jerseys but, you were know, so You won't loose. be able to drop the ball because it'll stick to your jersey or something? Oh, supposedly. <laughs> oh, all of that stuff, and it's it's made out of, you know, a thousand plastic bottles and probably you know, all that kind of, kind of jazz. That's what these modern jerseys seem to be, don't they? 
That was RNZ sports reporter Brenton Vanisselroy on Morning Report last Monday, doubling as a kind of fashion design pundit for the jersey the All Blacks will wear at the Rugby World Cup in Japan later this year. Now that jersey, which is not actually made out of recycled bottles, was revealed to the world and the media by the makers Adidas just half an hour before, and they had all their PR ducks in a row for the big reveal, and of course actual All Blacks as models. And there were also simultaneous videos ready to roll out on all major social media platforms. Designing a kit that's fit to continue the legacy it was made for. After all, we do not own this jersey. We are its guardian. We wear it, protect it, and leave it in a better place than when we found it. Over at News Talk ZB, host Mike Hosking had got his hands on the Japanese designer's work, and he loved what he saw and felt. Uh, the texture, the design, the fabric used, the stretch, the pliability of it. Is it slimming? That's, that's absolutely the, the most amazing. Important it would be thing slimming. To me. Absolutely. Very, very slimming. Because firstly, it's in black, obviously, which is naturally slimming. And of course, it's got this, this beautiful body hugging fabric. On TVNZ's breakfast show, it was the figure hugging properties that turned on co host John Campbell and Hayley Holt. Collarless and so tight. Tight. Mate. It's a bit too much. It looks like just... those people. I had a friend once who um, was dating this guy. He used to like going to the gym. He borrowed her T-shirt oh, <laughs> just for so because it was so, so small. Cool. It made him look real muscly. Yeah. That's what those guys look like. Sunny Bill's looking good. And Sunny Bill was sounding good too in a live interview half an hour later. You've never been on the telly before. Have you got that jersey on underneath? Because you were wearing it in the, in the modelling shots before and it looked tight on you and we were saying how good it looked. Yeah, I got it here. Antoine um, really liked the jersey, the fit. I think it was a bit bit too small for him. Yeah. But it was just right for me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's you, pretty you, cool. Yeah, it's it pretty is. cool. Now, disappointingly for the TVNZ breakfast team, Sonny Bill kept his baggy top on, so breakfast viewers didn't see that tight all-black jersey. But he did do a great job for his employers of making the jersey sound super special. And then also he's represented, I think, quite well the past and present jersey. Players and the new new players coming through with um, the ferns, the big big ferns and small ferns on the front, so it's a pretty special jersey. Yeah, nice. And it's a reminder also that this is big business, right? And where would the All Blacks be without Adidas? There'd be a whole lot more players overseas, that's for sure. Interesting point there from John Campbell. That line about the manufacturer's sponsorship money and punters paying for All Black shirts keeping All Blacks in New Zealand was one that Adidas bosses ran heavily back in 2011 when the company was under fire for charging New Zealand All Black fans $220 for the World Cup jersey that year. And that was much more than fans overseas were being charged for the same thing. And at that time, no one was pushing back harder than John Campbell. After Adidas top brass appeared on TVNZ's 7pm show Close Up to do damage control, John Campbell, who was then at TV3, ambushed them live as they left TVNZ studios. Greg, have you guys totally and utterly buggered this up? No, we haven't. And later, John Campbell told MediaWatch just how hard his show had worked on that story. You know, we interviewed Oxfam about how much Adidas are paying their workers. You know, I, as far as I'm aware, that we, we were the only people on television to make that effort. The price differential that Adidas were wholesaling to American retailers at versus what they were selling to New Zealand retailers at, and we estimate it was about 35% less in America. Now, back in 2011, some retailers responded to that and dropped the price of the jersey for fans. But eight years on, last Monday, John Campbell was in TBNZ studio and the price of the new all-black jumper for fans didn't come up. 
Now, contrary to the ads saying that the All Blacks don't own the jersey, they're just kaitiaki, Adidas does want fans to buy the 2019 version, as TVNZ's One News pointed out that night. Fans wanting a piece of the action can buy the replica jersey and other supporters' gear from today. Paul Hobbs, One News. And the next day, it was Mike Hosking on News Talk ZB who was looking into what fans here would actually get for their money. The jersey that was released will never be available to you. I was under the misapprehension, maybe it's just because I'm thick, but I was under the misapprehension yesterday that the jersey released is the jersey that the All Blacks will wear as the jersey that you can buy. Not so. Oh dear. Well, MediaWatch checked the Adidas website and home jerseys designed by Y3 can be bought for $150. But the small print says New Zealand players wear a version of this jersey at the Rugby World Cup. And for $200, you can buy a performance version of the jersey, the tighter-fitting one that's harder to grab. But that too would only be a version of the thing which the media were shown on Monday and which Mike Hosking had had his hands on. What is on sale is just another faux version of what we've had before. It's well, black. Well, you can still get one. It's shiny. What, the actual All Blacks jersey? Yeah. No. Yeah, no, you can. No. Yeah, because you just need to win selection into the All Blacks Oh, squad. sorry, then... yeah, if you pick, get picked, I suppose if you're the top 31 or 32, you stand a chance. But apart from that, you will never lay your hands on it. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this week. We'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night for Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we'll be back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.